continuing it too. Your sins, uh, transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us who lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Therefore remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision which is done in the body by human hands remember that at that time you were separate from Christ excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier the dividing wall of hostility, by setting us aside in his flesh, the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by the one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, which Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Amen. Um, we're going to look at that together. Um, there's a lot of people, like I said, away sick today, but we know that with sickness, one of the most prevalent 
uh, new diseases of the last few years is the man flu. And the man flu is something that I've fortunately not suffered all that frequently. But when I had it, oh, did I have it. And I, I, am in too much of, I was in too much of a daze to really remember this. So I'm going entirely off what Tara told me. But apparently, a few years ago, when I was inflicted with the, the deadly disease of man flu, I woke her up in the middle of the night, and this is what came out of my mouth. Take me to the hospital. I'm dying. And she went and got me some Panadol and a cup of lemonade, probably with like a few teaspoons of cement, and fed it to me. I went back to sleep. I woke up in the morning, and she told me about it in the morning. And she's my loving, kind, compassionate wife, isn't she? Uh, and I was well cared for. But that's the thing. I thought that I was dying. And that can be what it's like or when you feel particularly sick. Now, this actually takes us to a, um, an idea or a passage in Luke's Gospel that I just want to spend just a little bit of time to set the scene for Ephesians chapter 2 today. Quite a famous thing that Jesus said. Jesus was, we're told, at a great banquet in Levi's house and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the laws who belonged to their sect complained to his disciple, why does this guy eat with tax collectors and sinners. It's a very familiar scene, a scene if you've read any of the Gospels. This keeps happening. Why is this guy with these guys? Why is Jesus hanging out with these guys? And one of the most famous things Jesus said in response to this is, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Now, I didn't need a doctor. I just needed a bit of, you know, love and care. But it's a true saying, isn't it? It's not the healthy who need the doctor, but the sick. And that was true not just in what Jesus said, but in what he did. He was there with the tax collectors, with the prostitutes, with the poor, with the unclean, with those who are outside of the nation of Israel, outside of what God had previously done in his world through calling together this people, which is what the second half of that chapter that we just read is all about. But I've misquoted Jesus because that's not all that he said. I have not come, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick, Jesus said. And then immediately he says this, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And this is really significant because as Christians, we can often think, uh, um, I'm sick, Jesus. Yes, please heal me. I've got these problems. I've got this stuff going on in my life. Please get me out of it, Jesus. Please help me with it. Please deal with it. But Jesus can't separate that thinking from the other thing that he said, which is, I came for the sinners. It's actually quite shocking. See, we can understand our brokenness. We can understand how things in our life just don't line up and don't work well. But it's a lot harder to deal with the idea or the truth that it's our own sin that's the reason for that. We might respond when we hear Jesus say this kind of thing. I thought you came for me. I'm not the problem. The disease is the problem. But you... 
He came for me, didn't you? But Jesus is always calling, come to me, you're in need of grace. And Ephesians chapter 2 does not beat around the bush with this. Okay, Paul's opening metaphor there is to, is to remind us that in our sin, we are dead. We are dead. And dead people don't do anything. Dead people can't do anything for themselves. Okay, I, if this is, I don't want to make light of this, but I don't walk past the cemetery fearing that someone's going to jump out because I know that the truth of death, dead people don't do anything. And that's what Paul wants to communicate at the start of this passage. We're in the second chapter of Ephesians, and so far the, the book of Ephesians has provided us with some real rich things to, to think about and to be encouraged by and to be affirmed in. From past, present to future, Paul has already said that the gospel is the news that Jesus was always planned. Jesus was always there, ready. Jesus came, died, and was resurrected. And it was always God's plan to bring about a people, to raise up a people in Jesus' own resurrection. It gives us the confidence that we're really his because it's all of his work. And we thank God. We thank God for what he's done. It's phenomenal. It's indescribable. But we do give thanks to it. We put words into thankfulness. From chapter 1, verse 15, we know that it produces faith, that it produces love for one another. And like Paul does, we've learned that we join in that prayer, praying for that growth in that faith, growth in that love. And then, a couple of weeks ago, when we were looking at this together, we delved into that idea that Paul prays specifically for their hearts to be enlightened. Hearts opened up. Hearts treated like as if they're our mind, but that we, that we don't just have head knowledge, but we have heart knowledge of this truth. He prays that they would have heart knowledge. And on one hand, he's prayed this because he wants to see growth. But on the other hand, I actually believe that he was praying that because of what he needed to write in chapter 2 and what he needed to write in chapter 3 and in the rest of his book. That prayer in chapter 1, verse 18. Let me just remind us what it says. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you might know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance, in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Paul prays that because of what he's got to tell them in chapter 2. And what does he tell them? They were dead. Not only were you sick, you were sick because you're a sinner. See, this is the thing about sin. We're not sinners in class that way because we commit a sin. It's not like when I steal something, I become a thief, or when I murder someone, I become a murderer. Okay? When, sorry, yeah, when I kill someone, I become a murderer. It doesn't work that way. It's the opposite. I am a sinner, and that makes me sin. Now, 
when you contrast something, it actually helps you to realize its glory. This is pretty hard stuff in chapter 2. But when you put it in there, it's, when Paul's put it in there, he's actually trying to contrast it. Uh, we've recently moved out the road, um, living underneath my mum and dad for a little while, and we've got an outdoor bathroom. So when you need to get up in the middle of the night and go to the toilet, you've got to go outside uh, into, the, yeah, into the bathroom, not on the grass, but um, you've, got to go, you've got to go outside. And that's meant several times walking out on a starlit night. And because you're out of town, you can actually see the glory of all the stars because there's none of that light pollution that you get in town. And because that light pollution's taken away, the contrast is just phenomenal. And you can see the detail of the Milky Way and you can see the stars that are brighter and the stars that are further away. And you actually realize its glory. This passage is doing that. This passage wants us to front up to this reality. Because it's not a reality that is hopeless. All through this first part where he says that, that we're dead in our sin, he's not saying that we're dead in our sin. He's saying that you were dead in your sin. This is where God has taken you from. And knowing this, well, that brings motivation. That brings growth. That brings joy. And that takes us deeper into our, into our life in Jesus. This passage, I've broken it up into kind of Four points, but it's really just two points. You can follow it on your outline today. But what we're going to see here is the way that God's amazing grace, like we've sung, like we'll keep singing, God's amazing grace works on us individually and then it does something for us all together. How he brings us from death to life and then how he brings us from an alien to a citizen. So back to this idea of, of death, of being dead in our sin. Um, over the last little while, it's kind of died off now, which I'm really thankful about, but there was just like every fourth movie or fifth movie that was made was a zombie movie. Um, and zombie movies really like don't do anything for me. I mean, they're weird looking and uh, they're not entertaining. And I actually um, got, went along to World War Z, which was like, was that the Brad Pitt one? I don't know, yeah, the Brad Pitt one. And I like thought I was going to some kind, I, I didn't get that the Z stood for zombie, so I felt hoodwinked and I got in the cinema and I'm like, oh, a zombie movie. Anyway, um, and even The Hunger Games, which has also been a popular movie series, yeah, they ruined that at the end because they kind of like throw in these zombie-like things in the, anyway. But it's actually, a zombie is a bit of a, a good analogy here. Because when he calls us dead, we're obviously not dead. Like you're living, breathing, talking to me now. Well, I'm talking to you, but you're listening. But when he talks about our death here, he's talking about how spiritually, without Christ, we were dead. It's like back at Adam and Eve, the promise was live under my rule, live with me, don't eat from that tree. If you do, you will surely die. And then we see God's grace extend to them after they've sinned because he lets them live. But are they really alive? Spiritually, they've died. Something has 
He's dead now between them and God. See, he says here that we were dead in our trespasses and in our sins. That's how verse 1 begins. A trespass is when, I'll get to that in a second, but we were dead and we were now alive. Now, this is also why in chapter 1, when he prays that their heart would be enlightened and they would know the power of the Spirit, he specifically says that they would know the power of the Spirit shown in the resurrection of Jesus. Do you remember that? Chapter 1, verse 20 and 21 says that. He exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly realms. That's the power that Paul has prayed that they would know as God enlightens their heart. His physical resurrection is the picture for us of what he does for us spiritually when we come to faith in him. Not only is it hope for us of our own resurrection, of our escaping of the, you know, the ailments, the, the struggles of human life, of a broken body, all of those kind of things, but it's actually that our spirit will come alive. And so this is true of all of us that are Christians. Our conversion started when God breathed life into us. When he caused us to be born again, born of God. That's that passage in Ezekiel. His promise was that my people I will give a I will remove their heart of stone and I will give them a heart of flesh. The truth that Paul is trying to portray in this section is that none of us can do anything for ourselves to bring ourselves back into relationship with God. That's what he means by dead. Look at verse 1 with me. He begins by talking about our transgression. That is, we've gone against God's law. Everything that God has ever said, we've broken it. He says there in verse 2, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. He's talking of the devil or of Satan. And he says that we are like the devil. Not that we're ruled by the devil, but in his rebellion, we also share in that rebellion. That's why it's a small R ruler. He's not over us. But it carries on into our self-centeredness. Look at verse 3. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. It's expressed in our self-centeredness. This is what people who are dead in sin look like. And it finishes by saying that is the reason why we're deserving of God's wrath, of God's judgment. Because God is good. He can't stand for sin. He can't let sin carry on. And God is good even in that judgment. God's goodness means that judgment. That's what we were. Right back in chapter 1, verse 7, he's already said that in Christ we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. That's the extent of our sin, that Jesus had to pay that price in his own blood for yours and mine redemption. 
but it's actually teaching us beyond that that it requires our own resurrection. For us to ever do anything with what Jesus has done for us, we first need to be raised to life. And that's what he's done for us to receive Jesus. That's why it's all past tense stuff. See, these Ephesians that he's writing to are changed people. You were, he says. You used to live. Go on to verse 6. You are now over here. You are different. You have been changed. And it's God who has changed them. And God changes us because of his love, because of his mercy, because of the riches of his grace, because of his incomparable kindness. God never does this for us begrudgingly. Not on a whim. He does it out of his deep love for us. Verse 118, like we talked about a couple of weeks ago, he loves us so much that he sees us as his own inheritance to take for himself. He's delighted to raise us up to be his people. And this is where God's grace really makes sense. God's grace is an undeserved gift, completely undeserved, nothing to ever earn it. When I was a a teenager, about, I don't know, 15 or 16, I'd um, talked mum and dad into my birthday and Christmas present being a guitar and an amplifier. And that got me me going, got me playing, and it was uh, good. I got one for my birthday, and then a month later got the other for my from a Christmas present, and by Christmas Day, I could make a huge racket in the house. It was great fun. But then, not long after that, my mum's cousin came along, who I didn't know that well, and my mum's cousin's husband was with her, and I didn't know him very well, and he was like into guitar, and he played, you know, what can you play? He tried to show me a few things, encouraged me in it, that was fine. But then, out of nowhere, a couple of days later, before they were uh, heading back to Sydney where they lived, he turned up at my house and he's like, oh, I got this for you. I was in Ballina the other day. And he'd forked out on another bit of guitar equipment, which was worth a couple hundred bucks, which was worth nearly as much as the other equipment that I'd bought. And it was like a sound effects pedal. And my mum and dad loved it because it meant I could plug my electric guitar into it, plug headphones into it, and just kind of strum away quietly in the corner. But... This gift was completely undeserved, unmotivated. Like it's not even, it wasn't even someone in our family that we knew particularly well. You know, it wasn't like a, oh, the, here's your belated birthday present. It would have been like, here's your belated birthday presents for all the years because I've never given you anything before. Completely undeserved. What God has done for us is like that, but, but more. Okay, that's imperfect. But what God did for us was never deserved. There was nothing in us that we ever did to deserve it. What we deserve, verse 3, part B, is his wrath. But that is not what he chooses to give us. Look at verse 5. Read these words slowly with me. But, what a big but that is. But, because of his great love For us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you 
have been saved. From honestly what we deserve, God's wrath, to what he has graciously given to us. What an amazing thing. Grace can actually be a pretty hard thing to stomach, though. I don't know whether you've experienced this. It can actually be easier for us to believe that we're not that bad. And it sounds a bit extreme that we would deserve such wrath. It can also be easy to believe that somehow we earn it. Somehow we've got to do something to get it. Okay, it'd be like me uh, having my mum's cousin's husband turn up with this thing and then trying to work out a repayment plan for him. Okay, I wouldn't do that. But we can do that. We can be te- have the tendency to do that in our relationship with God. Sometimes it might be difficult for you and I to believe that we're actually worthy of receiving that love. Grace can be difficult to swallow because we just know that we don't deserve it. We know the hidden parts of our life. We know the extent of our own sin. And we think, how could he ever love me that much? And you might have experienced all of those things over the course of your life. But we've got to remember that it's necessary because otherwise we're spiritually dead and we cannot do anything for ourselves. Dead people don't do anything. But it can be hard to stomach. And so no wonder Paul prayed before he told these people that their heart would be enlightened, that God would reveal it in them. Because this is really where Christian growth comes from. Look at verse 7 with me. This is all in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. The trajectory of our growth as a Christian is deeper into this grace. It is to be more transformed by it. That's where transformation actually comes from. And so, in those last few verses of of this section, verses 8 to 10, you and I and the Ephesians and every Christian everywhere, forever, anyone that is ever going to be a Christian, is saved only by grace. It's not an opinion. It's not just one of the options. It's what the Bible teaches. It's the truth. And so we respond in faith. Our faith is only ever a response to God bringing us to life again. And Paul explains this so that they can be certain. Because if it's all measured on how much faith I have, whether God will raise me up again, well then... How insecure would I be? I mean, apart from that it just wouldn't work because I'm spiritually dead. But even if it did work, I would have no assurance. I would never be certain because I would constantly be worried. that Have I I got enough faith today? Am I really living up to this? Now, Paul's already said that he can see their faith. Okay, chapter 115, he says ever since I heard about your faith. And then he goes on to pray that their faith would grow. But faith is the evidence of this rather than the effort. God doesn't regenerate us in response to our faith. This is exactly why 
when we, we have uh, friends that we want to see come to know Jesus, we pray for them. And we ask that God would show himself to That's exactly what we ought to do. Because that's what God has promised to do. If we had to earn it, we'd have no ability at all. We're spiritually dead. If we had to earn it, we'd have no assurance at all. We could never be confident that we've done enough. But what God has done to show us grace makes us his masterpiece, he says. Look at verse 10. For we are God's handiwork. We are the work of God. The faith that I see in this room here, the faith that I see in the lives of our people is what God has done in you. You are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do the good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. We are his masterpiece. We are the new humans that he has created. His work in our life is a miracle and it's amazing. And he's got good things for us to do. He's got new people for us to be. And that's what we encourage one another in. That's why we meet together. In fact, that's exactly where he goes because this is not an individual thing. Okay, I didn't want to stop at chapter 10 today even though it's kind of nice and neat to do that because that's the wrong picture. We're saved individually, we're raised up individually, but we are raised into a citizenship, a family, a group. We're raised together. That's grace part two. God doesn't just give you salvation. He gives salvation to multitudes. Our world is way too individual in its thinking. As Christians, we just get lured into that all the time. Okay, We can constantly be talking about my walk with God, my, what God's doing in my life. That's good, but that can so quickly tip over into just me and God and not aware of what's going on around us. Nor does God save you just for your own peace, for your own peace of mind, just to heal those sicknesses that result from our sin. He saves us into his people. He saves us to bring peace with himself, but also peace with others. He saves us from individualism. Look at chapter 2, verse 3 with me again. All of us lived at one time gratifying the cravings of our own flesh. And following its desires. We were self-centered before we were born again. But he saves us from that and he puts us into community. Verse 11 to 13 explains that although Jesus was the promised Messiah, that is, he was promised for the nation of Israel, his death was for all. Come to those verses with me. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles... So all people that were not part of the Old Testament's promises to Abraham and all his descendants, by birth and called the uncircumcised, by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done by the body, in the body by human hands. Remember that at the time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenant of the promise without hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus. You who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Not brought near to God, but brought into his people. 
you have been brought into his people. There's heaps of verses that explain this. The, the way that Christ's death is for all, not just for the Jews, not just for the descendants of Abraham. John 3.16, God loved the people of the world so much that he gave his one and only son. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 says, For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. John chapter, oh, sorry, 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. See, when we come to faith in Christ, we're brought into this community. You have been brought near. And that actually means that we're brought into those covenants. We're brought into those promises made to Abraham that we will live with God's people now and in eternity. We're brought into those promises of Moses. We're brought into those promises of David, of a, of a king, a, a messiah, a ruler in Jesus. We're included in those. In fact, what Jesus did to bring us, who are not Jews, I'm assuming you're not a Jew, he did the same thing for the Jews. What we needed is exactly what they needed. Look at verse 15. By setting aside in his flesh, that is in Jesus, the law and its commands and regulations. Jesus had to fulfill the, the, their end of the covenants for them. And if you want to look into that, just come and talk to me because I'm not going to go into that because it's too big of a topic for this morning. But just to summarize it, we are included in these things. See, God's goal always in setting up a nation called Israel was that they would be a light to the rest of the world, that they would be for the benefit of all the nations. He promised that they would number like the stars in the sky, like the sand on the seashore. Now, either Abraham's kids were going to have to be very busy, just getting pregnant all the time, having lots of kids, or he was going to do it some other way. And this is exactly what he does by adopting in all people, by adopting in anyone that calls on the name of Jesus, by anyone in whom he brings new life. And because he's done that, the divide that existed between us and them, this is before our time, but that divide that existed is no more. The rest of chapter, uh, sorry, the rest of verse fifteen reads this way: His purpose was to create in Himself one new humanity out of the two, so making peace. There's no no divide. He's created one people. The truth that the gospel breaks down dividing walls is a massive thing. The gospel at work in your life means that things that matter in this world just don't matter anymore. Go over to Galatians. He talks about the divide that's broken down between Jew and Gentile. And then he talks about the divide between slaves and free people. And then he talks about the divide between men and women. And you can kind of just keep going with it. Any divide that our world puts up, when we are brothers and sisters in Christ, that divide is torn apart. God created one humanity he will redeem one humanity. And that actually means that we're a pretty mixed bag. 
we're an odd bunch of people, yeah? But we're actually a beautiful thing, like a patchwork quilt. My mum does that, and you go into the, um, the sewing room, which I got kicked out of, which was my bedroom when I was a kid. Oh, I'm over it. <laughs> and there's just, not in a messy way, it's like organised chaos, but there's all these little random pieces of odd-looking material and it gets stitched together into this magnificent thing. Very magnificent. Yeah, like I'd love one for my king-size bed, but there's never been one that big so far. Hint, hint. But that's what God does in and among us by his grace. The bigger that we get here, and we have been growing, like our average number of people that are here, you might be new, you are the new people, you are the growth. The bigger that we get, the more we've got to actually be mindful of this. Now, the bigger that we get, it can actually be a great blessing because there will be more people who are like you, who you can go and have a cup of tea with at morning tea time and relate quite easily to because you've got similar interests, maybe a similar stage of life, maybe a similar level of education, whatever, any of those things that kind of people normally click around. And that can be a really good thing by getting bigger because it can help us to settle in to be welcome. But we've got to be really careful that we don't lose the beauty of what God does by his gospel, that we don't turn into little huddles, that our gospel community Bible study groups aren't just with our friends but they're actually reflective of this. Think about it. Who do you serve with? Who do you, who do you go, yeah, I'll, I'll do it with that person. Do you ever do that because of that person, not because of what you're actually serving in? Who do you sit with when you come in? Who do you talk to at morning tea time? Who do you take the effort to actually look out for through the rest of the week? Who do you meet with? Who do you keep contact with? Who do you seek to gain encouragement from and give encouragement to? If it's not a diverse group, then can I encourage you to think about what this passage says? And if it's not a diverse group, just look in your heart and see why. See if that's an area that God actually needs to work on, needs to change, because there is no difference really if we're in Christ. Now, I tune into the news a little bit and if I actually, my preferred way to listen to the news or tune into the news is to go to ABC Sydney Radio, which, I don't know, I just like the presenters. They've got good charisma and stuff. But if you would believe what they said, it sounds like half of Sydney, pretty much everything built from the year 2000 is about to fall down, about to collapse because they weren't built very well. A bunch of cowboys were in there. I've heard stories about them setting up, uh, what's that stuff when you put the, the metal in the concrete before you pour the concrete on it? So th- they've been putting Rio down, the guys come and inspect it, they rip it out after it's been approved, pour the slab, and then they can reuse it on another site, so they can cut costs that way and stuff. Look, I'm not saying that that's really what happened, but that, if you believe the, the calls on the radio, that's the kind of thing that you hear. There's cowboy builders everywhere, isn't there? But what God has done, he's not a cowboy builder. There is a solid foundation, and that's where he leaves us. Look at verse 20 with me. 
what God is building by his grace, what he does in calling us to life again by saving us in Jesus. He builds us into a people. And look at verse 20. We are built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus as our chief cornerstone. And if it's Jesus that's building it, it will never fall down. There will be nothing in all of human history that stands taller or stronger than what God creates in his new people. And by grace, you're part of that. By grace, you've been included in that. And you've been given that grace actually to extend to other people. He doesn't just say that we're built up, but he actually says that we're built into a temple. Verse 21, In him the whole building is joined together and has become a holy temple in the world. Lord, and that is to worship God, but temples bring people in to worship God as well. And as we get built up, more people will be added to our number. It's where others can meet God. It's through us that people will come to know the gospel. I'm just not talking about them turning up on Sunday. I'm talking about as we live this through all of our life. This is how God continues to use his people to be light to the nations, to be light in Broadwater and Riley's Hill, to be light in Woodburn and Corakai, to be light in Evanshead, even the people that come down from Waddell and from Ballina, to be light there. We're built into this temple so that other people might come and experience that new birth. God is here with us among his spirit. You too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. You're saved, I'm saved, not by our own effort. But we're saved by God and that fills us with assurance. It's his abundant grace in our life and it brings us into that life of good works and it brings us into that community that he uses to continue to extend his grace beyond us out of his incomparable love and kindness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for that. Father, let this truth go deep into our hearts. Lord, as Paul prayed that the eyes of the hearts of his readers would be enlightened, Father, we pray that your Spirit would be filling our hearts with understanding, Lord, with joy, with contentment, with assurance of what you've done for us in Christ Jesus. Father, build us up in that. Lord, help us to overcome those feelings where we find your grace difficult to wrestle with and to deal with. And Lord, make us into, into new people, changing people, growing people. Lord, that more and more reflect the glory of what you've set about to do in Christ Jesus. We pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen.